This is the Heartland Daily Podcast. I'm Jim Lakeley, Director of Communications at the Heartland Institute, and we're very happy to have in our podcast studio today the Bob Chittister podcast and meeting room here at the Heartland Institute in beautiful Arlington Heights, Illinois. Uh, we have as our guest today Mark Joseph. He is the producer of a new film that will be released in theaters soon. We'll get to know exactly how soon, soon enough. And it's a movie called No Safe Spaces. It stars uh, Adam Carolla and Dennis Prager. And it's about uh, the crisis of free speech in this country right now. But uh, Mark has also produced uh, feature films, the, the feature films Reagan and Tolkien and Lewis. And he's worked in the development and or marketing of 40 other films, including Chronicles of Narnia, Ray, Holes, and many others that you certainly have heard of. Um, you're going to give a presentation. We're actually doing an advanced screening of the film here at Heartland tonight for a packed house in the Andrew Breitbart Freedom Center. So, uh, Mark Joseph, welcome to the Heart, uh, the Heartland Institute podcast. Thanks for having me. My dad grew up in Chicago, so I feel like I'm coming home to to the hometown, to the homestead. That's great. I hope you get some good. Uh, hope you get some good fast food. Portillo's is just down the street, all and right. there's a lot of great uh, junk food. Junk food capital of the world. Sausages. And I'm looking all for sorts the pizza. <laughs> the pizza as well, of course. Lots of great places right around here. So. Uh, you uh, hope you're able to get them uh, before you leave town. So when I you go down that list of, you work for Wald Media, right? And uh, that's known, I'm sure a lot of our listeners know that that is a different kind of production company in Hollywood. It, uh, Chronicles of Narnia, I think, was a Walden production. Of course, that's from C.S. Lewis, and it's Christian-based. It is values-based. It's not your typical, let's just say it's not Pulp Fiction <laughs> or Miramax, right? And so obviously, you're. A, I would think you're a conservative. And I think a lot of our listeners probably think that conservatives are about as rare as unicorns in Hollywood. Um, I've heard actually conflicting, uh, conflicting stories about that. What, what is it like to be a conservative in Hollywood, and how, uh, how many of them are you? Well, you know, it's funny. I, I really don't see myself that way. I sort of see myself as a mainstream, normal American, and that there are people, you know, I'm in a town that is just not very mainstream. And so I, I just like to think that I bring the values of the heartland to the projects that I do, uh, like where we are right now. I feel like <laughs> I'm at home. Um, and the, the folks that, that often, many of the folks that I work with are, don't always share those values. I'll give you an example. Chronicles of Narnia, I was getting ready, we're developing that script uh, at Walden Media. And, uh, you know, we hired some writers and director and various people, and the writers turned in a draft of the script that had the children swearing at each other, dropping the F-bomb, uh, really? other, other words that children are not supposed to be saying. And, again, I, I was looking at the script going, I wrote, I wrote in the margins, have we lost our minds? Why would we have 1945, World War II era, sweet British children? Okay, maybe Edwin wasn't, Edwin wasn't <laughs> sweet, but uh, dropping the F-bomb. And um, there's just yeah, there's just something wrong in the way that we develop things in Hollywood. We're just totally out of touch with the country. And I wrote in the margins of that script, we're going to have protesters outside theaters if we do this. This is insane. Wow. So so again, I, yeah, I just I just sort of look at myself. Uh, I feel like I'm I'm Mayberry USA, and there are people that have gone off the deep end on on other sides, but. But yeah, I don't look at myself that way, and, and I learned that from Ronald Reagan. You know, mm -hmm. Reagan Reagan used to say that 
he was asked one time, uh, do you consider yourself a uh, Goldwater conservative? And he says, you know, I don't use those terms because those terms keep me apart from people that I want to reach. Mm. And I think that's where the Reagan, the, uh, the Reagan Democrats come from. Yeah. Uh, but, but to answer your question, yeah, we, we have definitely have a, an issue of people in Manhattan and Malibu being out of touch with the country. And so we were talking earlier that every week about 95% of Americans don't go to the movies. They essentially reject every week what we do. Mm-hmm. And that used to be a very high number. I think it was up to 60% back in the 30s, if I'm not mistaken, of people that would go to the movies every week. So when you stop making movies that people care about, people just don't show up. And they're polite about it. They just stay home. Right? <laughs> they don't complain. They just stay home. Yeah. Well, that's, that's fascinating. I never heard that story about Narnia. What was, your, uh, what was your job on the Narnia film? So I worked at Walden Media. So my job was I was helping to develop the movie from the very beginning. Um, I also brought Disney on board as our partner. Wow. So we had a – uh, I think the trajectory, which later happened, uh, was going to be a, a partnership with Fox, between Walden and Fox. Uh, but I had a friend named uh, Rick Dempsey at over at Disney, and we began to talk. And I said, you know, I really want this to be with you guys. This feels like a uh, Aslan should be a Disney character, right? Mickey, Minnie, Goofy, and Aslan. <laughs> and so we began to talk, and he went to his boss, Dick Cook, the president of Disney. And Dick said, well, you know, I, I don't think it's going to work. But you're, you can talk to those guys. But it's been around for a while. This probably has been around for a long time. Since the 50s, I don't think it's going to happen. But we, Rick and I began to kind of agitate. And before we knew, we kicked it upstairs to our bosses, and they sealed the deal. And so the first, uh, the first uh, was with Disney. Wow. I mean, Narnia really is one of my favorite films. I mean, I, you see it on, like, I don't go to the movies. If you just said I don't go to the movies. Uh, you you, you are anymore. America. Yeah, but I watch a lot of movies, but I watch them at home. And every time I see Narnia's flipping through, you know, I stop because I want to see what part of the movie it's in. I thought the casting in that film was fantastic. Tilda Swinton is the most chilling villain. I mean, she is so perfect in that role, and it still sends chills up my and my wife's spine when we see. It's like, oh my gosh, how can you act? You know, that is so frightening. That and so I, I think that film, frankly, is just about perfect. Wow. Okay. Well, I shouldn't argue with you, <laughs> but you know, as somebody who was around it, I felt like it was a compromise film. Everybody got something, but nobody got every everything they wanted, and mm-hmm. which is okay, I guess. Um, there were some moments in the green screen that I just thought I could see the outline when the kids are on the hillside. I'm like, wait a minute, we spent that much money and we can still see the outline of... Um, and the other thing I would say is it's very difficult to direct children. Mm. And I think our director had come off of Shrek. Uh, and, you know, to go from directing computers to children <laughs> is not easy. Mm-hmm. Um so I, I, you know, again, I'm 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 picky because I was close to it, but uh, but we got it off the ground, and you know, there were no major problems. Um, so I, I think it's a win. No, I absolutely agree. So all right, the flattery part of the well, it's not going to be the last time I flatter <laughs> you in this podcast for sure, but uh, I do appreciate that. And a, a little side, a little side note about Narnia, and just to think that. That original script, I mean, to have those sweet, like you said, sweet World War II-era British children swearing, I mean, yeah, there would have been riots in the streets. I still have that script in my file, so if you ever see me on Pawn Stars <laughs> selling it, you'll know I needed money for my kid's college education. Oh, boy. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, um, so let's talk about this film now. It's uh, it's No Safe Spaces. Now, um, I'm a big fan of both Dennis Prager, personally, and... Adam Carolla. So, and I and I've you know I know they've gone on speaking tours together, and I've listened to Dennis' show a lot, and they've, he's talked about this movie, and it's very exciting now that it's it's near completion. We're seeing an advanced screening, not necessarily the final version of the film, which will be out later this year. 
but how did you get involved in this in this film, Mark uh, Joseph? And, and how did you get these two guys, uh, Dennis Prager and Adam Carolla, to team up uh, for to fight basically snowflake culture together? Sure. Uh, originally, I was talking to Tim Allen about doing a film like this, mm-hmm. and uh, we met a couple of times. And the more we met, the more we he said, you know, I think I want to do a narrative instead. Uh, so we're developing a film about a guy who who becomes president, who probably wasn't expected to become president. It's, it's a dark comedy. But anyway, uh, so we moved off of that. And the more I thought about this idea, I had had some friends that had approached me who told me that Tim and uh, that um, Dennis and Adam wanted to work together. So, so we kind of moved this idea over to Adam and Dennis. And, and the more we talked about it, this was an issue that was dear to their heart about free speech. Uh, when we started the film... We thought it was just going to be a film about free speech on college campuses, but we quickly realized it was a much bigger. That was just the on-ramp onto the issue. And what we realized was that ethos that is reigning on many college campuses is now going to be coming to society at large. Mm-hmm. And um, I think people that I know in America think, oh, college campuses, those are crazy places, but eventually they'll get a mortgage, they'll get married, they'll have kids in a minivan, and they'll all come come back to normalcy. But I'm not sure that's going to happen this time. I think now we're into issues where, uh, you know, a, a large number of young people really don't even believe in the idea of free speech yeah. that you and I might take for granted that we learned in civics class. Uh, I think the polling data is up to the 40s and 50s of people who believe that you shouldn't have free speech if, if it offends somebody. Uh, and that's a that's a kind of a worrying idea in the film. And we really worked hard to try to make this as bipartisan as possible across mm-hmm. the spectrum. Notice you'll, that. you'll notice <laughs> that we have some people in here that may not be speaking at Heartland in the near future. Maybe they maybe they will. Uh, uh, but but we wanted to find a consensus and to say that there this is a concern from liberals as well as conservatives because you know the old fashioned good old fashioned liberals like conservatives do believe did believe in free speech do believe in free speech mm-hmm. I think of Alan Dershowitz for instance right, as an right. example and in the film he talks about the idea that when he's in his classroom uh, or was in his classroom he would look around the room and, and say future president future Supreme Court justice you can see future leaders in your classroom and and so when you have that group coming from a group that doesn't believe in the idea of free speech, you're going to have real problems. I think there's a coffee shop, I want to say, in Berkeley in Northern California that doesn't serve uniformed police officers, for instance. Okay, well, I mean, that, that's, that's a, little bit, a little bit of what we have coming our mm-hmm. way, um, to refuse service to people you don't like or Wait, not so, allow so, people. So, you, they, so you're allowed to not serve a police officer, but you have to bake that cake, right? Is that the world we live in well, now? I mean, this, these are the issues we're going to have to deal with in the near future here, and, just, and also in social media especially mm-hmm. with what's happening. And there are a lot of interesting issues raised by social media, right? They are private companies. Do they have to tolerate speech they don't like? Uh, but that's our, that's our public square, Right. So there are a lot of uh, intersecting issues, if that's a word, that courts will have to deal with in the future. Um, and uh, so anyway, th- th- all of that uh, came, came into, our, into our view, and we set out to make this film. Uh, the idea was to have Adam and Dennis tour college campuses, and then we have a, we have a lot of fun. I mean, look, at Adam's a comedian. We're not here to uh, put people to sleep. 
we make movies that are for theaters, not just for uh, late night viewing when you can't sleep or at three in the morning on the History Channel. So we have a lot of fun. We have animation in the film. We recreate Adam and Dennis as young people. I have We hired actors to play young uh, Dennis Prager and young Adam Carolla in various clips we have, animation. And then um, a lot of great interviews. Jordan Peterson. Mm-hmm. Uh, we follow Ben Shapiro up to Berkeley as they attempt to shut him down. We fo- follow Ann Coulter as she does get shut down and attempt to speak at Berkeley. Yep. But then we also have Van Jones and, and as I mentioned, uh, Dershowitz as well as uh, Cornell West uh, to really see if we can't come to a consensus on what we agree upon as Americans, really. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, there was a survey 2017 by the Cato Institute found that half of all college students approved of government intervention concerning quote-unquote hate speech. Now, I'm, I'm 48 years old. I'm Generation X. Um, you look about, you look Gen X-y to me. And so, uh, but, you know, when I was in college in the late 80s, late 80s early 90s, there was a li- there seemed to be very tiny green shoots of this kind of attitude. Um, I don't know if, if the University of Pittsburgh where I went had a free speech zone, but I know that, I remember that there were some talks about it, that, you know, it's not you know, but it was it was fringe talk. It was crazy talk. I mean, we did. I mean, Nation of Islam uh, guys passed out flyers right next to the Lyndon Rouge guys on the corner outside the student union at, at Pitt when I was a kid. And, and you could just grab these things and read them. And they're wacky, but they're interesting. And if you're 20 years old, you know, you'll read anything. <laughs> that's, that's that's interesting to you. But we seem to have um, moved into some strange, bizarre place where 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 kids have been programmed completely differently than the way our brains worked when we were young and we were in college. And, and I saw I was watching some clips today um, for the movie uh, No Safe Spaces, which you should see in theaters. This is the movie that from Hollywood that you should support. So go out there and get tickets and see it in, in theaters when it's out. But, you know, Alan Dershowitz, you know, as he said, he, he looks into his, in his classroom and he's been teaching now for, what, three decades? And so, well, three decades ago, we would have been teaching guys like us, Right. And our generation, and we didn't think this way. And so I thought, you know, there's a part of me, you know, when I was 20 years old, I was a big dummy. You know, everybody who's young really thinks they're so much smarter than they are. You know, as Dennis Prager says often on his radio show, they lack wisdom. You know, the most important human value or uh, virtue trait is wisdom. Um, Unfortunately, usually you don't realize that you're too old. (laughs) You get them through experience. But... I kind of started, started to feel sorry for these for these college kids. I mean, they're out there rioting. Um, they're throwing it at Berkeley um, when uh, Milo uh, Diannopoulos was going to speak there, and they uh, you know they rioted. Uh, ben Shapiro and Coulter, you've mentioned these things. Like conservatives come to campus and the students riot. And there's a part of me that wants to be sympathetic to these kids because they didn't come up with this on their own. They were taught that hate speech should be banned and that we're going to define what hate speech is. They're basically being taught to be tiny little totalitarians and to have a totalitarian, totalitarian mindset. And so I was thinking this while looking at that clip of, of uh, Alan Dershowitz, and I'm like, it's not the kid's fault, Alan. It's your fault. They were taught this by college professors, or K through 12, all the way through college. I mean, am I, am I crazy? I mean, these kids can't come up with these things. It's not Lord of the Flies out there. They're being taught and indoctrinated on this. So we may want to blame snowflake culture, and it's really nice to, and really easy to, to rip on millennials. But they were taught these things by Generation X and by the baby boomer generation. Is, is, am I right? Yeah, I wouldn't uh, say that Dershowitz was one of those. I think it's a different class. I do sure. think that there, uh, I think of like Nat Hentoff and mm-hmm. Alan Dershowitz. There's a kind of old school liberals that I do think genuinely believe in the free exchange of ideas. 
And also, I, I mean, I think back to even somebody like, you know, people like Jerry Falwell are often maligned as being intolerant. But the truth is that he had Ted Kennedy to speak at Liberty University, or Liberty Baptist, whatever it was called back then. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I, I do think um, e- even the ideologues in the right and the left that we think of as ideologues did believe in free speech and did enjoy the free exchange of ideas. I grew up watching those Fred Friendly specials, if you remember those, back in the 80s and early 90s, where Fred Friendly would gather all these prominent people and they would all sit around and, and just you know go at, go at each other in a, in a collegial way. Mm-hmm. And I think of Ronald Reagan, who used to say to Tip O'Neill, is it 6 o'clock yet? And O'Neill would say, what does it matter? And he would say, well, if it's 6 o'clock, we're friends again. You know, we argue until six o'clock, then we go out for drinks and dinner, and and we're, and we're not uh, we're not crazy uh, in this way of shutting each other down. And there's, so something new has come in the last three, four, five years, and people say it's around 2013, 2014 when something changes. Mm. I don't know what it is; we haven't figured that out. But something comes into the the ecosystem, ecosystem that begins to say, "I'm going to shut you down, not argue with you mm-hmm. or debate you." Um, you'll often hear, well, that's settled. That's a settled issue. Well, it's like, no, nothing is settled. I mean, we we constantly have to argue and debate things, right? Uh, but it's easier to shut somebody down than to actually engage in the debate. So, especially if you're losing that debate, you know, I mean, that's that's a big deal. So, so it is it is worrisome. Now, I don't want to ever be. We're not making the case for uncivil behavior. You know, the right to be nasty online or be mean to people. It's not about that. We're talking about ideas here, mm-hmm. right? The debating right. of ideas. And so I don't think anybody should call anybody ad hominem names and uh, and, and be uncivil or yell fire in a crowded movie theater. But we're talking about the debate of ideas and issues. And, and also just the idea that when you disagree with somebody, they're not your enemy. They're just somebody that you're disagreeing with. Like you can, if you think the tax rate, the federal income tax should be 41%, and I think it should be 36 or 21, like... We're just debating an issue here. There's no reason for us to hate each other uh, or not to be able to be friends. If I could pass one piece of legislation, Jim, and I'm pretty sure this is unconstitutional, but if I could, I would require members of Congress to all live, not in the district, but in Washington, D.C., and here's why. Um, they, I don't think they socialize very much. And if their wives were... Uh, socializing, their kids were in Little League together, their Mm. kids were in ballet together, they would have a hard time yelling and screaming on TV at each other. And they would at least figure out a way to disagree, but get along with each other. But they're on different screens on the weekend, they're home on the weekends, they don't don't spend time together. So I think there's there's something important about learning the art, uh, which I think our founding fathers and throughout history, we've figured it out until recently that you can very, very strongly disagree with somebody, but still be civil, get along, and find common areas in other areas of your lives. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you say you trace it back in, with your research and getting, you know, getting this film together back to 2013, which means this can't be blamed on Trump. One thing in the world that it's can't pre-Trump. be blamed on Trump. It, it is, pre- it is pre-Trump. pre-Trump. I mean, I, I wonder if it could be uh, the Tea Party comes out, then Occupy Wall Street comes. Mm-hmm, yeah. There's a yin and a yang going on that might be. And who knows the forces behind all this, right? Whoever's putting money into movements. But... But something happens around that time, and it is pre-Trump, correct? Yeah, but you know, this this all seems to go in one direction. The violence always seems to go in the rioting and the protesting and all of that always seems to go in one direction. Conservatives just don't do this. Again, I keep harping on Prager because I listen to him a lot, but he makes this point often on his radio show. Conservatives are too busy, you know, raising families, and they're, they're generally happier people. 
and so they're not out there angry holding signs and it's the it's the left that will will you know interrupt you will will riot will um, you know great example is that the tea party uh, has a huge rally um, at the national mall and when it's you know 100,000 people when they leave it's clean <laughs> it's as if the boy scouts were in there and then when there's a leftist rally of some sort it's it, the place is trashed um, there just seems to be different values among the left and the right and um, that's fine. You should still be able to live together, converse together, even govern together, even if you have differing values. If you hold basic values like, I have a right to speak, you have a right to disagree, but not shut me up, because that's not what America is. But again, th- this goes in one direction. I get another thing, I keep bringing up Prager. He should probably be paying me <laughs> for this. But um, of course, you remember the 2016 election, and Thanksgiving was right after that, a few weeks after, in November, obviously. And there were stories after there were story after story about uh, people who voted for Hillary who would disinvite family members who voted for Trump. Um, you see this on social media, Facebook, for instance. I don't talk about politics on Facebook at all anymore. I mean, I'm in the public policy business, not politics, but I'm in, I'm in the business of ideas, and I don't want to share them on Facebook because I've had friends of mine, close friends of mine, ruthlessly attack me. I'm like... What are you doing this for? We're fr- can't we just disagree? We're friends for crying out loud. I went, you know, <laughs> your brother was in my wedding. Why are we having this argument? This is ridiculous. And it all goes one way. I've never heard a story of, of a conservative or a libertarian at Thanksgiving of 2016 who said, no, you can't, you can't bring Aunt Martha to Thanksgiving. She voted for Hillary. It just doesn't happen. And so obviously this film... You, you do have a balance because you bring in guys like Cornell West and, and Alan Dershowitz and even Van Jones, who's a you know socialist. I, I think Van Jones has actually said, did I not read that he he considered himself a communist? At yeah, one communist. Point. That's what I was going to say too. Right, yeah, commie. So, but yeah. So, but 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 it seems like all. So here here's I don't but, think but, you know I don't think Mike real Moore, communists believe in free speech though. So maybe he's uh, not. Right? Maybe, he's, maybe he so. fooled you to get in the film. But <laughs> but I'm just I'm just saying I'm maybe going on too long. But you know if Michael Moore was to make a film about this, he wouldn't be bringing in Dennis Prager to to be a part and and to share his views on his film. You brought in people from the other side. So it seems to me that there was a big problem about free speech in this country, and the problem is not conservative, it's the left. Well, we have to solve it together, right? I mean, maybe that's probably the, way, the reason we did bring them in. We, we, we do want to show that free speech is as American as apple pie and baseball and, and the 4th of July. This is not some fringe idea. Mm-hmm. And look at our founding fathers were not namby-pamby. Uh, they were tough people, right? Some of the Debates they would have back and forth in election, even in elections, there was some tough stuff going on. I, I was reading about the 1804 election, I think it was, and the names that were called by, but, but it was, uh, you know, it, it, that's part of America as well, that we vigorously, vigorously argue about things. But at the end of the day, we're still Americans, and when we go home, and um, so that's a that is a fine art, and I, I do think we have to cultivate that idea. We have to relearn it as a mm-hmm. culture, and as Reagan used to say, you know, freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. And so we do have to remind our young people that there's nothing wrong with vigorous debates. There's no reason they have to be nasty. We can disagree on policy, and uh, and we 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 arrive at compromises. That's how this country was birthed, right? Uh, we, we found uh, ways to give and take, and um, so that's that's our hope. I hope the film will inspire that, and uh, and show and re- and give a little history lesson, reminder to young people, especially of what free speech is about. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I, I think again, getting back to the the people on the left that you invited, 
to be in this film. Um, and I really look forward to seeing their contributions. The film is No Safe Spaces. Go see it in a real movie theater when it comes out. Uh, that would be a great to help support this great film. Um, you know, and, and again, Prager, here we go again. He mentions on his show, because he's had Alan Dershowitz on a lot. I hear him on as a guest. He's played clips from the movie when Alan Dershowitz is talking. And Dennis Prager always makes the distinction that there are liberals and then there are leftists. And he says, liberals are our friends. Liberals are not these crazy leftists out here. Alan Dershowitz is a liberal. Um, you know, I don't know if Van Jones is a liberal, but, you know, or Cornell West is a liberal, but, you know, they're men and women of the left. He used to be able to say that and actually wouldn't really have to make a distinction. But I got to be honest with you. I, sometimes I think Dennis makes too much. You don't have to defend Dennis here, obviously. You're your own man. But it, it seems to me sometimes it, it kind of gets a little annoying to hear Dennis continually make the distinction between liberals and leftists. Like, I already know that. But, you know, if the left is going to be fixed or reined in or corrected or taught to re or retaught to embrace free speech, they're not going to, it's not conservatives that are going to be able to do that. It's the liberals. It is guys like Alan Dershowitz and Cornell West and Van Jones, and they're not doing it. Yeah. I, I think as you'll see in the film, I think for someone like Van Jones, it's almost like he wants to build a better liberal. And the, the advice in the movie is in the context of, I want liberals to be better at this. And right now, they're not being trained to oppose other ideas because there's a bubble where they're protected. And so it's almost like he's not a born-again conservative or coming over to your point of view. He's saying, I want my side to be able to do this better. And to do it better, you have to be engaged. You have It's like a, a boxer who hasn't fought in three years and steps into the ring. Well, he's, he's not sharp, right? He hasn't been training. And he's going to get his, he's going to get his clock cleaned, uh, and so I think that's the spirit in which I perceive Cornell and mm. and Van and others in the film is wanting their side to do better. To do better, you have to be in training. Mm. Well, I mean, I, the, the the more I thought about it today, preparing for this podcast, uh, I was thinking, you know, it seems to me like the, the and I could be wrong, and you can agree or disagree, but it seems to me that you know. These wild, crazy, anti-speech leftists—you know—they were—they came from that side of the spectrum. Okay, the, the, these are not former libertarians or conservatives who have woken up, got woke, and, and thought something else. These are people that came up in the, basically, the education systems that's been controlled by liberals and the left for generations, plural. Okay, and so there's so so now again maybe after Occupy and Tea Party 2013 or so, and especially after uh, the election of Trump and people going crazy. And social media making people even crazier. You know, there's this creature that was created by the left side of the spectrum, by the liberal establishment, and it's running roughshod. And they don't seem to mind so much because they mostly eat conservatives. They they deplatform uh, Stephen Crowder from YouTube, which is a hot story going on right now. They get people's Twitter accounts canceled. They get people kicked off Facebook. We had a, a one of our, um, our ex- executive editor Justin Haskins of the Heartland Institute. Um, we made a video t- where he's a millennial, urging millennials to reject socialism and give freedom a chance. That you're not being told the whole story about socialism. And he was banned. Facebook removed his account to be able to advertise that video through Facebook. He wanted to pay them money to advertise the video, and they wouldn't let him do it. That's already yeah. happened to yeah. the film. I'm sure. I bet. Yeah. yeah. So, so I, my my point here is like it doesn't seem like. It's, it's not going to be the, the right, as, as great as this film is, and it's going to be, um, uh, should be seen by everybody, and will really open your eyes and should steal you to the very important fight we have for free speech in this country. But it seems to me the people that could do something about this are perfectly happy watching this beast that they created eat all these conservatives. And, but they're not just eating conservatives. They're eating, they're destroying 
the concept and the principle of free speech in the United States. And without free speech, we don't have a country anymore. And to me, I think they really need that, that message needs to get to them. And I hope maybe some liberals, when they watch this film, may come to that realization. We do hope so. We do hope that uh, those three people in particular will be a, a draw for uh, you know for people that are uh, to the left of of, uh, of center. I was going to say we've already experienced this. There was a, a group up in Northern California that wanted to. There was going, they're, they're hosting an event similar to this one that we're doing with you guys, mm-hmm. and they went to advertise on Facebook. They were going to buy five thousand dollars worth of ads. And Facebook said, you guys have to declare yourself a political group. And they said, we're a school. Like, well, we're not a political group. Um, and and they refused to $5,000 of advertising. So, like, the social media world, we're going to have to figure this out. It's going to be litigated. you got to figure out what does it mean to be a social media company where you're hosting the public debate. The public mm-hmm. debate is online now, but mm-hmm. private companies, we talked about earlier. So that I don't know what how that breaks down. I don't know where the right and left will be on that issue, right? Yeah. Uh, I don't know where Justice Scalia would have been on that. I don't know where, where uh, Breyer would be on this issue. But I think it, you may have some unlikely alliances, by the way, on these. It might be five to four surprise decisions, but we do have to hash that out as a society. And it may be just declaring that you're a private company, but there's a public... Uh, utility or public purpose for what you're doing, and so it's different than just a, a mom and pop coffee shop. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it does feel when I get <laughs> at low points, it feels like the, sometimes it really does feel like the country's coming apart. Um, again, ever since Trump, I mean, they they just the left has gone absolutely crazy. I mean, it, it's it's certainly it's just turned up to eleven. It's I, I've never seen anything like this before, and I've been involved in politics or public policy. I mean, you know, I used to sit on the floor at the feet of my father and watch the Capitol Gang when, you know, a long too. time ago. I so I've been, I've been thinking about this and, and talking about this and been involved in this for my entire life. I've never seen anything like this. Do you think free speech can be saved in this country? Uh, I think it can, but we really, I think we have got to find the common ground on this issue of what we agree with and, and, and that's, it's critical. It's not just one side saying this, it's, it's the right and the left, the sane parts of the right and the left saying, look, these are the principles we agree upon. Mm -hmm. We have to be able to, if we can't, then we're going to fall apart as a country. And, and the, the, you'll see in the film, the efforts to shut people up. Uh, people who are not bad people, people just have, you'll, you, there's a, a clip in the film of uh, Brett Weinstein um, uh, up at Evergreen uh, College, up in, in, in this is this is a bona fide progressive by every measurement, and yet he loses his job because he doesn't want to participate in a in a forced way in a day he doesn't want to participate in. Mm-hmm. So I think the answer to your question is I do have hope, but it has to be. It has to be the same elements of, of society, of both sides coming together and saying these are the principles upon which we stand. Mm. Well, you know, I think conservatives that are aware, certainly the listeners of this podcast who are interested in these issues, certainly know that there is a free speech crisis in America today. But I wonder if the, how much of the general public really knows this. Sometimes we lose perspective because we're so, you know, into our own thing that we don't really think about, you know, well, how does somebody who doesn't really pay attention to this stuff really think? Do they even know these things are going on? Um, and I know you're taking this film around the country for advanced screenings, and I wonder um, if, you, if, if you're seeing this film 
actually opening some eyes from people who are not necessarily engaged in these issues rather than merely focusing the eyes of those who are, you know, hip deep in this stuff. Yeah, I, I think people have had no idea this is going on. They really don't. Mm. Um, and so it's a real surprise and a wake-up call to people when they see what's happening on college campuses. Um, uh, but it's been it's been very interesting. The reactions are, are quite surprising. I was in Dallas the other day, and, and one of the viewers raised her hand, and she said she had cried during the movie and that she was going to go out and be the greatest actress she can be. <laughs> that, was, that was a new one. But the point is people are feeling inspired mm. uh, to go out and whatever they're doing in their lives to, to, to be better at it, to be courageous. It ends on the note of, of being courageous, whatever it is that you mm. do. So uh, you never can predict what an audience is going to take away from a movie, and that one surprised me. I've had people in tears, uh, which also surprises me. Uh, but you want a reaction. As a filmmaker, you want a reaction, right? So right. all that stuff is good stuff. And I enjoy hearing, uh, we do Q&A sessions afterwards, and I uh, always enjoy hearing from folks and how it affected them. Ah, great. Well, hey, speaking of Q&A, there, there's going to be Q&A after this fantastic screening of No Safe Spaces here at the Heartland Institute. Our guest here is Mark Joseph. Two quick questions. One, I, I understand that uh, Dennis Quaid and his band The Sharks uh, yeah. contributed a song to the film. How'd that, how'd that happen? Well, Dennis and I are working together on another film, and uh, I told him about the film, and he's, a, he's an amazing artist. You know, it was kind of the luck of the draw that he became an actor, not a musician, because he was a musician first. Mm. And so he's got a great band, and he had a song. I asked him, uh, do you have a song that would be in line with what we're doing? And he had a beautiful song called Out of the Box, The Need to Think Out of the Box. And he has a line, uh, uh, don't get caught up in the schism of an ism. (laughs) Uh, And uh, so it's a great ending title song for the film, and we're so glad to have him on board. I was going to say also, you know, we talked a lot about uh, Dennis, but Adam is really a, a... kind of a prototype of, I think, how we should deal with these issues. Mm. Adam is an atheist who loved to listen to Dennis's Religion on the Line show. He loves to listen to Christian radio, if Mm. you can believe that, right? So you have an atheist listening to Christian radio. He's still an atheist, but he's an atheist after considering other points of view. And that's so important, you know? And even, uh, I have have a, a friend who's who was upset because his father only watched Fox News, but he only listened to NPR. <laughs> I'm like, no. do you understand the stupidity of this equation that you are exactly what you don't like in your father? Mm. You're both listening only to your corners of the universe. Yeah. So if you come to our house uh, some night, you know, I've got a bunch of kids, uh, six to eight, four to 18 years old, and we watch Fox, MSNBC, and CNN. We watch all, all the networks because I want to, I, I often tell my kids, you know, we're here. And each four years or two years, we see which political party is closest to us. We don't move. Mm. Which party? Parties come and go, move and whatever. Uh, which network? But we come to it after being informed and, and getting all different points of view. So I'm okay with NPR. I'm okay with Fox. All of the above. But to live in a bubble, which Adam doesn't do, and then come to your views is probably what's not not helpful to mm. us, right? If your views are strong and correct, they can they can withstand. Uh, being exposed to other points of view. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up Adam Carolla because I'm actually a huge fan of his as well. <laughs> just seemed I kept internalizing Dennis Prager's dialogue to me all, over the years on these issues. It's uh, a fascinating relationship the two between the two of them. Yeah, I, just I, having observed it for two and a half, three years now. Yeah. Uh, and again, you know, 
Adam Dennis is uh, is is not a supporter of abortion rights, and Adam is. You know, on gay marriage, they're, they're, they have differing issues. So it's really fascinating. They're great friends. Uh, Adam admires Dennis so much, and yet it doesn't extend to going lockstep on all the issues, right? And that's what's what's that's what a normal human relationship should be about. Very healthy. Seems like a very <laughs> healthy relationship. We need more of them. I think so. I yeah, think we used so. to have them all the time. You know, it wasn't so it wasn't so hard. We did. Um, and one last one last question I think is important for our listeners is when is this film coming out in theaters? We'll be out in September. All right. So we can't wait to share this with the world, and we'll be doing a lot of screenings this summer. And uh, we haven't announced that yet, but you know, we can give. Heartland listeners, a little sneak peek at our plans. So September is when we'll be in theaters. September is great. Our guest today has been Mark Joseph. He's the producer of No Safe Spaces. It is the most important film you you will see this year, and that's not a joke. And I'm going to be able to see it tonight with our guest who's going to be uh, presenting the film and taking uh, questions from our very smart audience here at the Heartland Institute. Mark, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Great to be with you. It's back. The Heartland Institute is hosting the 13th International Conference on Climate Change on July 25th in Washington, D.C. at the Trump International Hotel. This is the most important climate conference of 2019, featuring the world's best scientists, economists, and policy experts who will present the latest data and information showing that humans are not causing a climate crisis. Tickets are available now, but space is limited, so don't delay. Our keynote meal sessions will include at least one prominent member of the Trump administration, a leader of the historic Solidarity Polish Labor Union, who has had it with climate alarmism in Europe, and the latest round of the Climate Change Awards. Other featured speakers include prominent scientist Roy Spencer, David Legates, a Trump transition leader for EPA Myron Ebel, and Anthony Watts, founder of the most red climate site in the world. What's up with that? Visit heartland.org for more information and get your tickets today.